0: Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. Bow works. The more the more pressure on it, the more tension you create when you pull that string back. The farther and the faster the arrow goes. And and because we were very old, we couldn't get that thing back very far. But but we were pretty good. And we'd start shooting at the target there. And after a while, I'd hit that target a couple times. I tapped into my inner Robin Hood, feeling pretty good about myself. So I was looking for other things to shoot. Right? I was looking at the birds. Like, damn, eh, I, I couldn't get it that high. But but uh, we were so we were looking at things to shoot. And then I. I saw the, uh, the light pole over there that was supposed to light up the, uh, you know, the baseball field at night. And so I began to wonder, I thought, how cool would it be if I shot an arrow up there and it went up and then stuck right on the top of that pole? That would be awesome, right? Right. Because what would happen is the next day we'd be down there for baseball practice and all my friends would be like, man, look at that. Somebody shot an arrow up there and be like, yeah, that's me. Don't mess with me. And so I had this whole kind of thing figured out what I was going to do. And uh, we shot up there. That is harder than you think. I mean, we shot and shot and shot, couldn't get it to stick up there. So then we just started seeing, well, let's let's see how high we can shoot the arrow up in the air. Right. And so we are just, you know, shooting that arrow up in the air, and it was getting higher. So you'd pull it back a little harder, and it'd go higher. And and, uh, we're just seeing how high we could get it. And it was going pretty high. We were pretty pleased with ourselves, but we thought, man, I think we could get more distance. And so we turned to our dad, and we say, Dad... If we can shoot our arrow that high, imagine how high you could shoot yours, because he has a compound bow, it's got all the bells and whistles on it, and it's designed to create maximum tension. You know, for those of you who are bow hunters, you know what I'm talking about. At the very beginning, it's super hard to pull back, but if you get past the little release point, there's a wheel that rolls down, and it sort of removes the tension from your arm, and it holds it in the wheel. It doesn't remove the tension from the string or the bow, it just removes it from your arm. And so we're like, Dad, if we can shoot ours that high, Imagine how high you can shoot yours with your big, awesome, cool bow. And he said, all right. You know, um, I think he just wanted to prove to his sons how cool and how tough he was. And so he grabs an arrow, sticks it in his bow, pulls the string back as far as he could after we tried and we couldn't do it because he's way stronger than us. Pulled the string back as far as he could, straight up in the air, let it go. Has anybody ever shot an arrow up in the air, straight up in the air with a compound bow? Anybody? then you know what we discovered about a half a second after my dad released the arrow. Because after he released the arrow, all three of us, our heads shot up, and we looked up, and we realized that because of the clouds in the sky and because of how fast and how high that arrow went, within a moment, we couldn't see the arrow. Straight up, and we couldn't see it. My dad, he's a fast guy, but I've never seen him move this fast in my entire life. He grabbed me and RJ and he threw us underneath the car and then he dogpiled on us. I don't know how all three of us fit underneath the car, but believe me, we fit underneath the car. And we were sitting there in this little Johnson dogpile and as I think about it now, I'm a little upset that RJ was closest to the bottom and I was in the middle. I always felt there was more potential in me than in him and I should have been the safest at the bottom, but, but I'll take that up with him later. Um, but there we sat for about five seconds preparing ourselves for this Johnson kebab. Um, we were waiting for that arrow to come down. My dad was praying. I mean, he was like, dear Lord, and all that stuff, speaking in tongues and all this stuff. I mean, just, oh God, oh God. And, uh, and we were just waiting for the Johnson kebab to, to just finish us. About five seconds later, um, we hear the arrow hit about 10 yards from us. And when that arrow hit, it went all the way into the feathers in the ground. So they're just a little bit sticking out. And um, we get out of the car and we're like, "Oh, that was awesome!" And Dad was like, "That was stupid. We're never gonna do that again." He said, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize how far and how fast that thing was going to go. I didn't realize that it was going to be out of sight. I didn't know that it was going to shoot that high. He said, that was stupid. I'm so sorry, boys. We'll never do that again. And let's just not tell your mom about this at all. (laughs) But he was surprised, I don't know why, at how high it went. And how fast it went. I, I, I think that sometimes in our lives, as, as we consider this message about peaks and valleys, as we consider the series that we're in, I think that there are some times in our life that, that God will allow us to experience seasons of tension. That God, like the bow, will will string us and and pull us back and we'll feel that pain and we'll feel that tension and we'll feel that valley of isolation. Last week we talked about Kareth and the pain and the valley of isolation. And I believe that sometimes God will allow us to experience that. He'll allow us to go through that. He'll allow us to endure that because there will come a moment in our lives and there's gonna come a moment in your life where God is going to release that tension. He's going to release that pressure. He's going to let that go. And when he does, you are going to fly farther and faster than you ever dreamed possible. There are moments in that tension and in that pain where you learn to recognize God's voice, where you learn to depend on the provision of God, where you learn to trust in God. There are times where you learn how to find comfort in that pain, but when God lets you go, he's going to let you go for a purpose because he's got a plan to advance the kingdom through you in a way that will completely blow your mind if he told you about it before he lets you go. I believe that there are some of you in this room today that are in a valley. You're feeling right now, you're feeling isolated, you're feeling alone, you're feeling defeated. When we talked about the Valley of Careth last week, you were like, man, that's me. You're in this place, you're feeling broken, you're feeling abandoned. You may even be in this place and you feel like you're ready to snap. Like the pressure is too much, the tension is too much, it's been held back too long. You feel like your whole body is just shaking with nervous anticipation. You don't know how much more of this you can handle. I believe that God is about to release the tension in your life. And I believe that God is going to use you in an awesome way. I believe that you're coming into a season where you're going to see the hand of God clearly and powerfully in your life. I believe that you're coming to a season when God releases that tension, when he releases that pressure, you are going to begin to operate with a supernatural boldness. I believe that there are some of you that are going to begin to operate with the clarity of a call of God on your life. You feel like you've just been wandering around not knowing for sure what you're supposed to do, not knowing for sure where you're going to go. I believe that there's going to be a moment when God releases that tension where he's going to clarify a call in your life and you are going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what he wants you to do. And you're gonna do it with courage, you're gonna do it with boldness, and you're gonna do it with divine energy. I believe that there are some of you that are getting ready to come into a season in your life, both spiritually, relationally, financially, physically, in all of those areas where you are going to fly faster and farther than you've ever flown in Jesus' name. See, I I, I think that as, as the Lord was, even even in between these two services, as the Lord was sort of clarifying this picture of, Of the the bow and arrow, and the target, and his dream, and his desire for us. We know. We know that God has a target for us, right? We know that God has a destiny for us. We know that God has a plan for us. And if we just allow him to call the shots, if we just allow him to shoot the bow, we will hit the target that he has for us. But many of us feel like, like that target, that destiny is all that matters. But, but what I want you to, to discover here this morning, that as God pulls back that tension, as God gets ready to release you into his divine call, his divine destiny for your life, not only does he have a plan for the target but he also has a plan for the journey amen that there is not one inch of your life not one inch of your journey that God doesn't want to redeem and roll back into kingdom advancement purposes that God is passionate about growing the kingdom Jesus says and we say this all the time where Jesus says I will build my church And the gates of hell won't prevail. Jesus promises, he promises, he promises that the church will grow, that the church will move, that the kingdom will advance. Now here's the good news for us. Here's the good news for us. That the tools that God uses to advance the kingdom, the tools that God uses to grow the church are you and me. And when we willingly submit our lives to him, when we willingly surrender our victories and our defeats, our joys and our pain, when we, really, when, when we willingly surrender our time in the valley of Careth, our time in the valley of isolation, when we willingly surrender all of that to Jesus, he uses it for his glory in awesome, divine ways. Now, I don't know what God's plan for your life individually is. I I have an idea that you, you have an idea. I, I believe that you probably have in your spirit somewhere at least an idea of what God wants for you. Maybe you're fully embracing it this morning. Maybe you're running from it this morning. I don't know. But you have an idea of what God wants for you. And maybe you've been in a valley of isolation. Maybe you've been in a valley of pain. Maybe you've been feeling some tension. Maybe some tension in your marriage. I want you to know that God wants to use that tension in your marriage to produce in you and your spouse a greater level of intimacy and dependency on God. Maybe you're dealing with some tension in your job. I want you to know that if you give it to God, God will begin to use that tension, begin to use that pressure to create more productivity from you in your job in a way that is going to allow you to roll all of that glory up into God and give him all the praise. Maybe there's been some tension in your neighborhood. Maybe you're looking around at your neighborhood and you're like, man, I don't like that neighbor. 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 neighbor." Any of you? Some of you? We'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. Right? Those of you who raised your hands, you're probably that neighbor that nobody likes. (laughs) Right? But the reality is that God can use that tension in your neighborhood to do a divine work inside of you. And the goal may be that he wants to create in you an opportunity and a heart to evangelize and pastor that neighborhood. That tension in you God wants to use for His glory. Now I want to show you how this plays out in, in uh, First Kings chapter 17, because last week we looked at Elijah in the valley of Careth, and we know that, that he's going to end up on Mount Carmel, right? Uh, Elijah has lots of peaks and valleys and one of the one of the highest peaks in his life is is a, a showdown that happens on Mount Carmel that we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. It's a showdown where he calls fire down from heaven and basically defeats 450 prophets of Baal in this sort of epic whose god responds by fire. It's awesome. It's just an amazing moment in scripture. And, and, and as God begins to pull back the bow of Elijah's life and begins to allow that tension to build so he can shoot him all the way up to Carmel, God has a plan for his, Elijah's life on the way to Carmel. God uses Elijah's life on the way to Carmel not only to bless somebody who is at the very bottom of the barrel, to bless somebody who, who has no hope, to bless somebody who has no future, to bless somebody who is destined for eternity in hell, essentially, and to show her the way for salvation, God uses him in a phenomenal, phenomenal way. And so, um, let's let's look at what happens here. First Kings chapter seventeen, verse eight. It says this. Then the Lord said to Elijah, when he was there in the the brook by Kareth, in that isolated place, nobody was around. He was completely alone. He'd been there for about a year. Uh, God was feeding him with ravens. And I would imagine that after a year of being completely isolated and alone, there was some tension, there was some pressure mounting. And so then the Lord said to Elijah, while he was there, go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. God says, I've instructed a widow to feed you. Now, a little bit of context about Zarephath and Sidon and and all of this stuff. Zarephath was a city in Phoenicia, okay? It was a Phoenician city. And the reason why Elijah had run away and was hiding in the valley of Kareth is because he had confronted Ahab and his wife, Jezebel, who was a Phoenician princess. And so what Jezebel had done is she had introduced the worship of Baal in Israel. God wasn't happy about it. God wasn't happy that the people of Israel were beginning to worship Baal. And so he told Elijah to go into Ahab's throne room and tell him, there's going to be no rain until I say and because of that statement, because of Elijah's boldness, and they would call it arrogance to come into the throne room and declare that, Ahab and Jezebel wanted Elijah dead. In fact, they had, they had begun killing as many of the prophets of God as they could find. And Elijah was on the top of their list. Elijah was on their most wanted list. And so, um, so that's why Elijah was hiding for about a year. But then God comes to him and says, I want you to go to the Phoenician city of Zarephath. And I want you to go there and be fed by and be taken care of by a widow. And so he goes to, he goes to Zarephath. Um, Zarephath was this Phoenician city. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess. And then God adds this. He says, oh, remember, Zarephath was near the city of Sidon, which Sidon would have been Jezebel's hometown. So this lady who has dedicated her life to kill Elijah... Her hometown was Sidon, and Elijah was told to go right next door. You're going to stay right there in enemy territory. Then God says, and then I'm going to send a widow to take care of you. I'm going to direct you to the house of a widow, and she's going to take care of you. Now, there are are a lot of times in our lives where, where on the outside looking in, it seems like God makes bad decisions, right? Anybody bold enough in church to admit that you have thought that God has made a bad decision in your life before? couple of us, right? When God says, I want you to go there, we look at it, we look at, we look at all of the, the details about it, we, we study it, and, and we, we come up with all of the reasons why it's a bad idea. It could have been really easy for Elijah to say, look, God, you know, I mean, Zarephath, you're, you're talking to somebody else, right? Because that's not me. Because Jezebel wants me dead. But God has a plan Not only for Carmel, God has a plan for Zarephath as well. And there are some of you in this place where, where God is God is kind of showing you the destination. And you're excited about the destination. You're excited about the possibility of legacy. You're you're excited about the possibility of family. You're you're excited about the possibility of being used by God in glorious things on Mount Carmel. And and he's beginning to stir up those visions of victory in your heart right now. But he has a plan for you in Zarephath as well. Zarephath is that place where, where he was surrounded by unbelievers Elijah was literally in enemy territory, and God sent them there to be taken care of by a widow. Now, in that culture, in that day, widows were amongst the poorest and the neediest people around. It would have taken less faith for Elijah to continue to depend on ravens to come in and feed him than it would be for him to depend on a widow in Zarephath. Verse 10 says this. So Elijah went to Zarephath. He did what God told him to do. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little cup, a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her again, bring me a bit of bread too. So this is what happens. Basically, Elijah comes into Zarephath. He says, excuse me, ma'am. I've just been traveling for about 100 miles. I'm tired. I'm dirty. I'm thirsty. Could you get me something to drink? So she complies. She goes to get him something to drink. Uh, I don't know if she was doing it uh, joyfully or if she was kind of put out by it. Like, whatever, I'll just do it. Um, but she was going to get him something to drink. As she was going to get him something to drink, he calls out to her again. Oh, by the way, give me something to eat, too. You know? And, While you're in the kitchen, go ahead and make me a sandwich as well. That would be awesome. I appreciate that. Right. And, um, and this kind of reminds me a, a little bit of putting my four-year-old to bed. Seems like this happens every night. I put my four-year-old to bed. I lay her down, and uh, as I'm walking out, she says, "Daddy, I need a drink." And you know what I'm talking about? Right, so you go and get her a drink. Come back. That wasn't my cup. That's fine. We're going to use this cup. But mommy said we can't. And you can share cups tonight. Like it's fine. All right? Take a drink. You're walking out, shutting the light off again. Daddy, I forgot my chapstick. Mommy said I had. And, and it's always blaming mommy, right? Mommy said, I need chapsticks. Okay, I'll get you a chapstick. Here it is. This is it. Can I hold the lid? No, you can't hold the lid. Just put the chapstick on, and they're walking out. Daddy, what? I love you. I love you, too. Good night. Daddy, what? You forgot to give me a hug and a kiss, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about, right? And, and so you go over there, and by now you're kind of gritting your teeth, and you give him, like, an aggressive kiss, like, That's enough. I love you, but this is it, you know? You threaten spankings and all that stuff. You finally walk out. And I always feel like, man, you're testing me. You're testing me. But but the only reason why she does that is because she's confident in my love for her. Because she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt how much that I love her. And you know what I've come to realize? is that there are times when the believers come out of the valley. There are times when believers come out of that, that time of tension, that time of pain. And, and what happens in the valley is that they become so confident of God's love for them. They become so confident in God's provision. They become so confident that God is a loving Father that is passionate about them, that listens to them, that responds to them, that is engaged with them, that is interactive with every bit of their life, that as they come flying out of that place of tension, as they come flying out of that valley, even before they get to Carmel, while they're in Zarephath, they become so confident that they're willing to, listen, that they're willing to engage with God and really begin to demand the blessings of God. And they're willing to ask God, God, I want more. God, I want more. Just like my little girl, one more, one more, one more, one more, when people come out of the valley, they're willing to look at God and say, God, one more. God, one more. I need more. God, I need more of your glory. God, I need more of your provision. God, I need more of your goodness. God, I need more of your anointing. God, I need more of your joy. God, I need more of your peace. God, I need more. I need more. I need more. And it's not because they're selfish. It's not because they're arrogant. It's not because they're making bad decisions. It's because finally they become confident in the fact that their Father loves them dearly. And when he goes to this widow at Zarephath, he says, Could you get me some water? Why was he asking this widow for some water? Because God told him that there is a widow there that's going to take care of him. And then as she's walking away, he says, Oh, wait, by the way, food. Seems kind of like a jerk move, right? Like, like, just relax. Elijah, get your water first. Like, ask her her name before you start demanding food, you know? But he's so confident in God's love for him that he's willing to lean into the promises that God has already spoken over his life. Verse 12. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house and I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I will die. What's happened here in Zarephath is that the drought in Israel has affected the people in Phoenicia as well. And so this woman and her son were literally starving to death. Okay, Elijah said, can I get a drink of water? She said, yeah, I'll get you a drink of water. Can I get some food? And then she says, hang on, Elijah, just a second here. Um, um, I swear by the Lord, your God, that we don't have anything. We have enough flour and enough oil to make one more meal, maybe if you want to call it a meal. And then my son and I, were going to die. She says, we are literally starving to death. You've asked me for food. I can't give you any food because I don't have anything to give. We are starving to death. Have you ever said anything to someone that you wish you could take back, right? Maybe you don't know the entire situation and you've kind of stuck your foot in your mouth. You're like, ooh, out, sorry. And you really do everything you can to backpedal and apologize for that. Man, that, that happens to me more than I would like to admit, because um, people come into the church, they're new people all the time, um, and, and, and man, a lot of times, I'll just say stupid things. A couple years ago, there was a family that came in, a couple, and, and their children, and they had an older son, he was probably eight or nine years old, and I was talking to them, you know, asking their names and everything, and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and I said, hey, what, what grade are you in? He said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? What grade are you in? He said, I don't know. I said, wow, well, your teacher must not be a very good teacher if you don't even know what grade you're in. And his mom said, well, actually, he's homeschooled, and so I'm his teacher, and so I could probably do a better job. And instantly you're like, oh, man, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. My wife tells me all the time, I'm convinced she's right. Sorry. I'm so stupid. And you know, I'm just apologizing and apologizing and apologizing and backpedaling and saying, hey, you're in luck because there's free coffee today. Let me take you to the coffee shop right? I'm just doing everything you can to get out of it. And, and I feel like that um, this should be Elijah's response to the widow. Hey, could you get me something to eat? Well, actually, me and my son are about to die. We don't have any food. Oh, oh, sorry, wrong widow. <laughs> could you tell me where the rich widows are? Because God told me that uh, there's a widow here that's going to take care of me. It must not be you. Right? And, and I would imagine if it was me and I would have said that, I'd be apologizing. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I didn't realize. You know, maybe, maybe we could go around and we could ask people, why, why, why don't we organize a food drive and, and, and we'll get you taken care of? Or, or, hey, you know what? I got to hook up with God because he's been feeding me with ravens. You know, maybe some of those ravens have made it here. Dear God, send the ravens for this lady so you can give to her, so she can give me. I don't know. You know and, and, and I would think that there would be all sorts of apologizing going on. But I want you to see what Elijah says and what could potentially be the most ridiculous response ever. That's what he says, verse 13. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Any of you bold enough to say that? And he says, then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. Okay, good, fine, I get it, you're starving to death, right? Um, Go gather your sticks, go make your little pie, Feed me first, and you and your son can have whatever is left over. Verse 14, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, listen to this. This is what he says to her. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Now, the Lord, the God of Israel, was the one responsible for this drought, right? Um, It was the Lord, the God of Israel, judging Israel, that, that the judgment on Israel carried over to Phoenicia. And it was the Lord, the God of Israel, who had closed up the heavens. So the Lord, the God of Israel, was responsible for the pain that they were enduring right now. And he says, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and crops grow again. And every time, I, every time I read this story, I always look at it and think, this, God must have prepared a, a believer, a, a, a God worshiper, a, a Jehovah God worshiper, a Christ follower, a Christian essentially, there in Phoenicia to take care of him. And, and this was sort of an encounter between two members of the family of God. But as I read this again, there's nothing that would suggest that she's a believer. She is there in Phoenicia, influenced by Jezebel's leadership. Her location suggests that she was a Baal worshiper. And her comments in verse 12, when she says, the Lord your God, I swear by the Lord your God. She doesn't say my God. She doesn't say the Lord God. She says the Lord your God. He's not my God. He's your God. I swear by the Lord. And so it suggests that she would be an unbeliever. And what we say A lot of times here at church, and talking to the believers, so many times we try to create teams, we try to create categories, we think that in order for us to reach our divine destination, the only encounters that we're going to have along the way are with believers, right? Oh, God directed me to this believer, and it was wonderful. And God directed me to this believer, and it was wonderful. And God directed me to this believer, and it was wonderful. And God directed me to this believer, and it was wonderful. And then I hit my target, and oh, glory to God, my life is great, right? But that seems to conflict with the plan and the mission that God has for us as believers to advance the kingdom, to grow the church, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Yes? Yes? Wouldn't it be more likely if if God has a plan and a destination for us over here that along the way he wants us to encounter unbelievers... Wouldn't it be more likely along the way that he wants us to engage with and interact with unbelievers and to show them the glory and the power of God is available for them as well? Wouldn't it be more likely that as we get to our divine destination that God wants us to rub shoulders with unbelievers in a way that's going to radically alter their physical situation here on earth, but more importantly, determine their destiny in in heaven? Yes. And so, In this time in Zarephath, God directs him to this widow who doesn't seem to be a believer. And she says, you know, the Lord, your God. And and Elijah says, yes, my God is the God of Israel. Yes, my God is responsible for this drought. Yes, my God can supernaturally supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. And what becomes odd to me is that in this moment that Elijah should be downplaying his faith, he leans into it. Because Elijah's in enemy territory. Elijah's in Zarephath. Elijah is right next door to Sidon where Jezebel lives, the queen who wants to kill him. If Elijah gets too excited about this God thing, it wouldn't be out of, out of the question for the widow to turn Elijah in and you know, make a pretty good profit for it. But Elijah when he should be sort of downplaying his faith, he leans into it and he gets really bold. Elijah has a good reason to downplay his faith around this unbeliever, but he didn't. We have zero reason to downplay our faith around unbelievers, but we often do. I wonder why. I wonder why. For some reason, we've convinced ourselves that we're honoring God by blending in with the world around us. Some, some, some of us, we will do whatever it takes to not be recognized as, as a Christian, as a believer, even, even if we have to sin a little bit, right? I don't know why. I don't know, I don't know why we do this. Is it because we don't want to offend someone who doesn't believe like we do? Is it because we don't want to add pressure onto them? Is it because we don't want to make them feel uncomfortable? Doesn't downplaying our faith as not to offend someone, doesn't that offend God? And are we okay with that? Are we okay with that? And I don't think that we need to be a jerk about it, but we as Christians need to stop being so scared. Because God, as as he allows that tension to build, as he allows that pressure to build in our life, and as he shoots us like an arrow into our destination, there are going to be people that we are going to encounter along the way that God wants us to influence for the kingdom of God. And if along the way we pretend that we're not believers, we're not gonna ever hit the mark. Because God doesn't just have a plan for our destination, he has a plan for the journey. And as he gives you the opportunity and the chance to rub shoulders with unbelievers, to rub shoulders with people who are hurting, to rub shoulders with people who have no hope, who are depressed, who are anxious, who don't know what it means to experience the joys of following the Lord, God gives us an opportunity to convince them of the glory and show them the glory of God. When did we decide that it was better for us as believers to become so focused on the other stuff that we become scared to talk to people about their stuff? When did we become so focused on getting there that that we've decided it was better for us to just clap for people and make them feel good on their way to hell rather than point to Jesus and say, this is the way, walk in it. You say, well, pastor, I mean, that's my way. What if it isn't their way? What if it isn't their way? You know, What if they don't believe like I do? What, what if they're not convinced of God? What if that isn't their way? What if it's just my way? What if it's not their way? Listen, it's not my way. It's not your way. It's not their way. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But what if they don't believe God? Listen, RJ said it just a little bit ago that we want this to be a place where you can belong before you believe. Elijah goes to this lady. She says, look, he he says, look, I know that you don't believe in God. I know you haven't surrendered your life to God. I know you aren't a follower of God. But if you will be obedient to God, he's going to reveal himself to you in an awesome way. Worship team, please come. We're getting ready to close here. Now, I know that we can't work our way into heaven. We can't earn our own salvation. But obedience to the word of God positions a person to receive the blessings of God. Obedience to the word of God positions someone to experience the blessings of God. Verse 15, so she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There were always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Now, my question, I just can't figure out here. Why would she feed Elijah first? Why would she obey before she believed? And I don't know, I I don't know. Maybe she thought if God, the God of Israel was powerful enough to shut up the heavens, maybe he's strong enough to produce oil and flour. I don't know. Maybe she'd heard the stories of the God of Israel. Maybe she was convinced that he was powerful. She just hasn't surrendered her life to to him. I don't know. Maybe she thought, what's it gonna hurt? We're gonna die anyway. I don't know. We don't know what she believed. We just know what she did. And because she was obedient to follow the word of God, God was obedient to offer abundant provision and abundant blessings. For two years, Elijah ate with this widow. So think about this. For, two year, for a year, he was completely isolated, abandoned, and alone. And then for two years, he had a family, an unbelieving, most likely Baal-worshipping family that he was able to expose to the glory of God. Some while later, her son died. And the widow was upset because she felt like Elijah was cursing her as a result of some sin or some hidden sin or some sin in her that she was trying to keep hidden from him. And she feels like Elijah found out about it and and he's exposing her sin by killing her son. And Elijah says, no, no, that has nothing to do with it. Let Let me have your son. And he takes her son into an upper room and he prays over her and the Lord blesses that prayer and he comes back to life and she comes back down and she, or he comes back down and he gives the widow her son back and, verse 24, it says this, then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. Many believe that this was the moment that it transitioned from the Lord your God to the Lord my God. This was the moment that she placed her faith and her trust in the Lord God. Now, Because of her obedience, she got to experience the blessings along the way, but God wasn't done. God didn't want to just bless her. God wanted to save her. God wanted to redeem her. God wanted to establish her in the legacy of heaven. Now, what if Elijah would have said, she's an unbeliever, so I can't ask her. What if Elijah would have said, she doesn't have enough. I can't ask her. She would have died. Her son would have died. She would have missed out on what God had for her. But because of Elijah's boldness, but because of his courage, because he was so convinced that God loved him and that God was going to be true to his promises, that when God shot him out of the Valley of Kareth towards Carmel, as he was going through Zarephath, he was convinced that God was going to provide along the way. And he was bold enough to ask and bold enough to ask and bold enough to ask. Stand your feet all across this place. So my challenge for us this morning is will you allow God to use you? Maybe God has revealed his destination to you. You say, yeah, I gotta go to my destination, but will you allow God to use you along the way? Maybe some of you are pursuing a God-sized dream, but God wants to, to take a little detour along the way to reach a, a, a widow in Zarephath, to establish legacy and eternity for a widow in Zarephath. Maybe God wants to use you along the way, so, so would you allow God to use you? We just sang a minute. We're going to sing it again. Our our, our resurrected king is resurrecting me. There are many of you, you feel like you are in the valley. You feel like you are about to die. And God is getting ready to release that tension to shoot you towards your destiny. A resurrected king is resurrecting you out. But along the way, he wants to use you to advance his kingdom. Will you let him? Will you let him? Will you let him use you? Will you say, all of my pain, all of my past, all of my victories, all of my struggles, all of my joys, all of my failures, Lord, use me, use me, take me to Carmel, but along the way, let me in- infect and, and impact the widows at Zarephath. Lord, use me to advance the kingdom. Use me to reach the lost. Lord, use me for your glory. Bow your heads, close your eyes all across this place. Let me ask you, If that's you, and you would say, no matter where we are on the journey, use me, Lord. Would you just raise your hand? We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to connect with us, or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com.